Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the JS Bach Files. My name is Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to take a look at the first part of Bach's St. John Passion. Musical settings of the Passion of Christ, usually including an account of his last days in crucifixion, had an illustrious history well before Bach attempted his setting of the St. John Passion. The earliest versions generally made use of traditional plain chant to narrate the story, as in Arlande de la Sousa's wonderful St. Matthew Passion, where he alternates chanted sections with mostly homophonic and declamatory unaccompanied choral movements. Lassus, a late Renaissance composer of incredible versatility, was capable of writing music of great expressivity, but in his passions, he relied generally on a more restrained, even austere musical style. But Bach did not lack for role models in setting the narrative in a more modern, operatically influenced style involving arias, various ensembles, and the occasional chorus. In fact, there were several later and more elaborate settings that probably influenced Bach, notably Kaiser's St. Mark's Passion, which may or may not actually have been composed by Kaiser, Hostel's St. John's Passion, both from the early part of the century, and Telemann's Brokus Passion from the early 1720s. In fact, the Brokus text, which drew from all four gospel accounts and included considerable devotional commentary by Brokus himself, was set by any of a number of other composers, including Handel and Matheson as well. Kaiser's setting, for example, employs recitatives, arias, choruses, and chorales, like Bach's, and at times manages to achieve some dramatic tension, especially in his recitatives, but generally his movements are considerably shorter than Bach's and much less complex, and his use of chorales minimal compared to Bach. As far as Leipzig, Bach's home from 1723 was concerned, it had demonstrated fairly conservative tastes when it came to the settings of the Passion, for years preferring simpler, four-part polyphonic settings by Luther's musical advisor, Johann Walter. Telemann had introduced the more modern, operatically-influenced style to the new Church of Leipzig in 1717, and Kuno, who followed him, felt obligated to follow suit with his own, more modern treatment of the text for the other churches. But the powers that be resisted this modernization until, in 1721, they decided to allow the Vespers liturgy only, not the morning service, to be revised to enable the more modern or concerted setting of the Passion text, in this case based on the account of St. Mark. Although Kuno's setting has not survived in complete form, enough of it is available to show that it also may well have proven to be an influence on Bach particularly the idea of distributing the unaltered and unparaphrased biblical text required by church officials among the soloists interrupted from time to time with the sort of devotional arias I referred to earlier as well as chorales. So Bach, with Kuno's antecedent in mind, began his setting of St. John's account of the Passion of Christ for the April 1724 performance. Bach had first assumed that the performance would be held at the St. Thomas Church, but the city council informed him, only four days before the event, that it must be held at St. Nicholas's. This necessitated some last-minute shifting around of resources, including an addition to the space provided in the choir loft, since this work was to require somewhat larger resources than had been the case for most Bach cantatas. Just how large the choral resources were to be for this performance has been debated for quite a while. Before we get to Bach's actual music, let me suggest that a much more thorough discussion of possible antecedents for and influences on Bach's passions can be found in the exhaustive article by William Huffman, Literary Origins of Bach's St. John's Passion, 1704-1717, through 1717, 
available on the extraordinarily useful BachCantatas.com site. That site is also the source for the translation by Francis Brown of the St. John Passion text, which I'm going to rely most heavily on. And of course, Christoph Wolf's book, Bach the Learned Musician, also provides a great deal of information on the genesis and sources for all four versions of the St. John Passion. And while we're on the subject of sources, let me mention again two books that I've spoken of before, but which deserve renewed attention as we approach Bach's St. John's Passion. Michael Marison's Bach and God and Daniel R. Malamed's Hearing Bach's Passions. Both provide excellent and detailed discussions of related issues well beyond the scope of these podcasts, with Malamed in particular focusing on, among other things, the size and disposition of the choral forces. Also addressed primarily by Marison is the controversy emerging in the last few decades regarding the text which Bach used in the St. John Passion and its accusatory and at times vengeful tone taken in in reference to the Jews. Without in any way minimizing the seriousness of this issue, I'm not going to attempt to add anything to what I believe is a balanced discussion of the matter by Marison and will be, for the most part, taking the text, or in this case Francis Brown's translation of the text, as a given. As I mentioned a moment ago, the St. John Passion exists in four versions. We're going to focus on the first, from 1724, although I'll be mentioning some of the changes made for later versions along the way. The first setting of the Passion begins with a monumental orchestral introduction, which various historians and commentators over the years have marveled at for its ability to simultaneously set the stage for the drama and to encapsulate it. The introduction, orchestrated for two transfers, flutes, two oboes, violins one and two, viola and continuo, immediately exposes three main thematic elements. At the bottom of the texture, a pedal on the tonic note of G, repeated persistently in eighth notes. Above that, a swirling pattern of undulating G minor scale fragments in sixteenth notes, alternating with their lower and upper neighbors and doubled in thirds, creating a wash of sound, we'll call that mode of A, and above that, a striking series of dissonant suspensions. Although the implied harmonies fluctuate, there is never a great deal of a harmonic clarity, only a sense of restlessness and foreboding. Here are the first 12 measures, at the end of which the reiterated tonic pedal finally gives way to one on the dominant, which sets up a cadence which never quite materializes. pedal-induced tension may cease at that point, but the harmonic restlessness continues. It's true that we now encounter a clearly functional chord progression, a series of dominant seventh chords all resolving up a fourth in traditional fashion. But still, there is ambiguity, the major chords melting to their minor counterparts in the last half of each measure. And, where we expect a clear cadence in G minor, we don't hear it. Instead, a prolongation of the dominant which sets up the entrance of the chorus. 
The opening text by an unknown author in English translation is, Lord, our ruler, whose glory is magnificent everywhere, show us through your passion that you, the true Son of God, at all times, even in the most lowly state, are glorified. After the 18-measure introduction, the repeated pedalangi is reintroduced, and the voices enter with surprising restraint in block chord quarter notes on the first and third beat. But it's not long before the sopranos and altos, moving primarily in fourths against each other, assume the undulating sixteenth-note motive I referred to earlier as motive A, while the lower voices provide more diversified harmonic support. As the text repeats, Lord, our Lord, the undulating sixteenth-note melody works its way up the scale before breaking off and reintroducing the separated quarter notes, this time shifted to the second and fourth beats. But the tension has not abated, with the upper parts continuing to superimpose sharp dissonances over the repeated pedal, which has now been reasserted on G, as Bach seems to tilt in the direction of C minor. As the text continues to unfold slowly, we encounter the words, whose glory is magnificent everywhere. But in fact, there is little in the music to suggest triumph. The recurring dissonances over the pedal continue to suggest struggle far more than glory. As the text repeats, and as you could hear at the end of my example, the texture changes considerably. We hear a new motive, one beginning with an octave drop and with a more interesting rhythmic profile that serves as the basis for fugal imitation, beginning in the basses, then answered in turn by tenors, altos, and sopranos. As the voices accumulate, the texture becomes more complex, but the orchestral accompaniment is somewhat simplified. The undulating 16th notes of motive A continue to be heard in the bass, but in a somewhat simpler harmonic context, at least initially. But a variant of the motive A 16th note pattern is soon introduced in the basses and imitated by the sopranos, while the middle voices return to the simpler quarter note rhythms with which the chorus entered. Against these changes, the orchestral accompaniment now increases its activity substantially, and soon we have returned to the original texture associated with the first entrance of the chorus. These ideas continue to dominate for some time until a powerful descending chromatic line in the bass drives us to a cadence on G minor, which pauses on a fermata. At that point, the next part of the text is introduced. Show us through your passion that you, the true Son of God at all times, even in the most lowly state, are glorified, which is presented by a return of the fugal theme, 
which begins in the unexpected key of A-flat major, but doesn't stay there very long, working its way methodically through a series of keys before arriving back in G minor. When we arrive again at the words, are glorified, the situation still remains in doubt, musically speaking. We return to familiar motives, but the harmonic context remains far from settled. The fugue subject reappears yet again, along with the undulating sixteenths of motive A, which in fact have always been on the fringes of our consciousness, but another powerful descending chromatic line escorts us to a cadence on D major, which prepares us for the da capo repetition. This is certainly a lengthy and formidable opening movement. Bach's basic thematic materials become familiar to us soon enough, but just when the unfolding of the movement begins to feel inevitable, Bach turns to another idea, one which seems fresh, even as it strikes the listener as a logical extension of the former themes. We'll hear one more example from this movement, beginning near the end of the second section and taking us up to the beginning of the da capo repeat. the dramatic intensity of the orchestral introduction in the opening chorus, the first recitative, which initially sets the stage for the drama which follows by quoting the evangelist sung by a tenor, describing how Judas brings the soldiers and officials to arrest Jesus. The beginning of the recitative, set in C minor, sets a solemn and dignified mood as the text establishes the basic circumstances. Jesus went with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which Jesus and his disciples entered. But at the first reference to Judas, but Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, the tone changes, a chromatic chord, a full diminished seventh chord, taking us toward F minor, along with tritone motion in the bass. Both of these things introduce something of a dramatic jolt. As the text continues, now Judas had got a band of soldiers and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, and he came to the place with lanterns, torches, and weapons. The musical language stabilizes somewhat here, but there remains a sense of agitation as Bach continues to introduce chromatic chords and change keys. But when Jesus himself, sung by a bass, approaches the crowd and sings, Who are you looking for? The mood changes again. Even though we again encounter some chromatic movement and another change of key, the overall impression is one of restraint and stability. Bach makes it clear that Jesus was expecting this dramatic confrontation and is in complete control. After Jesus asks, Who are you looking for? The evangelist quickly inserts they answered him, and the chorus, representing the group of soldiers and Pharisees, burst out with an almost frenzied chorus proclaiming Jesus of Nazareth. I'm not going to play the entirety of every recitative, but this is an important one and provides a good illustration of the way Bach often incorporates recitative into a dynamic musical and dramatic flow. Jesus ging mit seinen Jüngern über den Bach Kidron. 
A brief recitative follows in which Jesus tells the soldiers that, since it is he they want, they should let the others go. This is followed by the first of several traditional Lutheran chorales, which provide devotional expressions or commentaries from the perspective of the larger Christian community. The text here is, O great love, a love without any limits, that has brought you along this way of martyrdom. I live with the world in pleasure and delight, and you must suffer. Again, I won't be playing all of these chorales, but they do play a very important role in the general pacing of the drama and in allowing Bach to involve the congregation. It's not clear whether the congregation actually sang along with these chorales, but they were all very well known to them and would have allowed for a sense of personal participation even if the members only followed along with the music internally. In the next recitative, the storyline is continued, alternating between the evangelist and Jesus. Jesus proclaims his identity, and Judas and the soldiers fall back momentarily. Jesus asks them again, Who are you looking for? Again, the evangelist provides the link, and the chorus again repeats the previous chorus, this time in G minor. The recitative that follows recounts Simon Peter striking off the ear of the chief priest's servant to the accompaniment of jagged, diminished seventh chords. At the end, Jesus is again heard, admonishing Peter, but in a restrained manner, completely lacking in angst. Put up your sword in its scabbard. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? This is followed by another chorale in D minor, serious, and with some very creative chromatic harmonies that manage to slip by almost unnoticed, but as restrained emotionally as the text suggests. May your will be done, Lord God, both on earth as in heaven. Grant us patience in time of sorrow, 
obedience in love and sorrow, restrain and guide our flesh and blood that acts against your will. The evangelist returns with a recitative beginning in F major but eventually moving to D minor that tells of Jesus' arrest and his delivery to the Jewish authorities. But the soldiers and their commander and the servants of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the man who was chief priest that year. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. The general tone of the recitative is straightforward and emotionally neutral for the most part, but some striking chromaticism is added at the mention of Caiaphas, and in the closing bars, a chromatic chord, an emotional indicator in this context, is heard as the text refers to one man dying for the people. Und bunden ihn und führten ihn aufs Erste zu Hannas. Der war Kaifas schwer, welche des Jahres hohe Priester war. Es war aber Kaifas, der den Juden riet, es wäre gut, dass ein Mensch würde This recitative passes directly to our first aria, remaining in D minor, sung by the alto soloist. It represents the individual devotional commentary of a believer and is based on the Brockus text I referred to earlier. From the bonds of my sins to set me free, my Savior is bound. From all infections of vice to heal me completely, he gives himself to be wounded. It's accompanied by two oboes and continuo, and is perhaps surprisingly ornate, with a myriad of expressive details. The opening instrumental introduction, which returns as a ritornello between the different sections of the aria, begins with a key thematic idea introduced by the second oboe with two distinct parts, the drop of a fifth outlining the D minor triad, followed by an arpeggiation up a leading tone chord. These two distinctive gestures are followed by descending and ascending arpeggios, the first in eighth notes, the second in quarters. I'll play an example in a minute. The idea is immediately echoed a half-step higher by the first oboe, creating some textural complexity right from the beginning. We'll call this four-bar phrase idea A, and here's a simplified example involving just the two oboes. You probably noticed that my example continued on after the initial four-bar opening phrase to a second phrase, which we'll call idea B, an ascending scale in thirds, topped off by a little sixteenth note flip between the upper and lower neighbor tones. Now, when the alto soloist enters, he does so not surprisingly by beginning with idea A, although the soloist sings a filled-in version of the opening bar of that idea. Instead of starting with a drop of a fifth down to the tonic, the melody fills in the space with an ornate descending passage. After that, the soloist replicates the rest of idea A pretty closely, 
while the oboes provide a counterpoint drawing mostly from idea A as well. You'd expect the vocal line to just carry on as the opening ritornello did and move to the phrase we label as idea B. And it does, sort of, but it's actually a variant of idea B. But idea B is not being short-changed here. In fact, as the aria progresses, idea B gets a lot of attention, and not always as an afterthought to idea A. In fact, in the brief instrumental ritonello that follows before the first line of text begins to repeat, it is actually idea B that dominates. Here's an actual performance of the beginning of the aria, including the opening ritonello, the first vocal section, and the first ritonello that follows it. As the text repeats, Bach introduces a new melodic idea, one which employs some rather exotic chromaticism in places, but idea B is not forgotten in the vocal line or in the oboe accompaniment, even as Bach modulates to F major. Variants of previous phrases make a return, but the effect of the major key seems to transform them. The emphasis is less on the bonds of sin and more on the Savior's ability to set the sinner free. After a long ritornello, still drawing on earlier thematic ideas, we encounter a new section, now in A minor, based on the second half of the text, From all infections of vice, to heal me completely, he gives himself to be wounded. Again, some new thematic elements are added, perhaps the most prominent being a rapidly descending scale line in sixteenth notes. But, again, thematic idea B works its way into the mix, sometimes in a version nearly identical to its original appearance, sometimes in a more embroidered version, particularly as Bach repeats the line, to heal me completely. Then, solidly in G minor, we hear an expressive new variant of the opening ritonello, which leads to a varied and at times more dramatic repeat of the alto's opening statement. Upon returning to the original key of D minor, we encounter a closer approximation of the first section of the aria, which eventually closes with a repeat of the opening ritornello. It's an aria with a great deal of atmosphere and, although tightly integrated, manages to show a surprising emotional range, especially in the middle section in F major. In the very brief recitative which follows, the evangelist states, But Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus. This serves as a segue to the most joyous and one of the most memorable arias of the Passion. The text, the author of which is unknown, reads, I follow you likewise with joyful steps and do not leave you. My life, my light, bring me on my way and do not cease to pull, push, and urge me on. The aria in B-flat major and in 3A time is for a soprano with obligato flute and continuo, and it begins with a simple but thoroughly charming ritonello that starts by repeating an ascending scale-wise figure against a descending bass line. 
Different versions of this melodic phrase, sometimes slightly simplified, are heard multiple times, both vocally and in intervening instrumental ritonellos. But it is not the only important thematic idea. As in the first aria, the second half of the opening ritonello presents a new idea which comes to play an equally important role. It basically boils down to a single pattern, built on descending broken thirds in a lower neighbor tone, which is replicated multiple times on different pitch levels, after which the initial phrase returns and a cadence on tonic completes the ritonello. The soprano soloist enters in bar 16 with a variant of the opening flute melody, one that inserts a simplified version of the second measure, and after a quick four-bar ritonello based on the second half of the opening ritonello, the soprano repeats the opening phrase, which is then extended by a charming new repeated idea as the next part of the text is introduced, and do not leave you my life, my light, as the key works its way toward F major and eventually cadences there. It's a splendid melody, perfectly suited to the text. Bach seemed to have a particular fondness for the idea of following with joyful footsteps, and similar texts inspired him to equally fine melodies in other works. As we reach the middle of the aria, now in F major, and we arrive at the text, Bring me on my way, and do not cease to pull, push, and urge me on, a new melodic idea is introduced, which is then repeated with variations several times. Of particular interest, as the words pull, push, and urge me on are repeated, is the powerful ascending line that climaxes with surging chromatic movement, suggesting both pushing and surging, as we head to G minor. At one point where the text repeats, the words are given a different musical treatment, but the idea of urging on remains intact. We leave G minor eventually to return to the original key of B flat major, and after a shortened ritonello, the original melody repeats, slightly truncated and varied, with the flute and soprano at one point joining together in thirds to spin out the melody heard in the second half of the ritonello. The aria closes with a recapitulation of the opening instrumental ritonello. It's a wonderful aria, and, not surprisingly, nothing else in the St. John Passion is really comparable, since, as the story proceeds, there is little opportunity to express the sort of cheerful optimism that we experience here. 
In the recitative that follows, the evangelist quickly pulls us back into the narrative, describing how Peter, standing by the door outside the palace of the chief priest, is questioned as to whether he is not, in fact, one of the disciples of Jesus. He denies it. Although the recitative back in G minor has been tonally restless up to that point, the music for Peter's response is far from overtly emotional. We have temporarily moved into G major at that point, and Peter replies in a firm but almost matter-of-fact tone. The evangelist recitative continues with a description of the chief priest questioning Jesus. Jesus' response is dignified and unhurried, in complete control. There is a slight escalation of the attention when the evangelist relates how one of the servants, dissatisfied with his replies to the chief priest, reaches out and strikes Jesus. But in general, the tone throughout is moderate and unemotional, even as Jesus says to the high priest, If I have spoken badly, then show what was wrong. But if I have spoken rightly, why do you strike me? This recitative is followed by another familiar major key chorale. The text by Paul Gerhardt begins, Who has struck you in this way, my Savior, and with torments treated you so badly? You are indeed not a sinner, as we and our children are. Of wrongdoing you know nothing. Of course, Bach was famous for his ability to completely transform the mood of a traditional text simply by reharmonizing the traditional melody which carries it. Still, the overall tone remains more poignant than tragic here. We'll hear only the second part of the chorale. I, I and my sins, that are as many as grains of sand by the sea, have provoked for you the misery that has struck you and the host of troubles and torment. The evangelist recitative that follows is a brief one, serving to propel us into the next chorus. And Anna sent him bound to the chief priest Caiaphas. As Simon Peter stood and warmed himself, they said to him, Aren't you one of his disciples? It's only that single line, but Peter's questioners, an entire crowd this time around, are more insistent this time. The chorus is not long, but bristling with the fugal imitation of a rhythmically charged theme first heard in the bass along with its countersubject, heard initially in the upper voices, as the chorus harangues Peter again and again. Und Anna sandte ihn gebunden zu dem hohen Priester Caiphas. Simon Petrus stund und wärmte sich. Da sprachen sie zu ihm. <Sie> 
In the recitative that follows, Peter again denies any relationship to Jesus. But then, one of the chief priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, accuses him. Peter denies Jesus a final time as the cock crows, and, in a line of text borrowed from St. Matthew's account of the Passion and missing in later versions of the St. John Passion, the evangelist tells us, Then Peter thought of Jesus' word and went out and wept bitterly. This final line is given an extraordinary musical treatment by Bach. A slowing of the tempo is accompanied by winding, almost slithering chromaticism in the melody line, giving the impression of sigh after sigh, and a remarkable chromatic line in the bass, first ascending and then descending at the words, wept bitterly. This emotional recitative is followed by an equally anguished tenor aria, the text by Christian Weiss, representing not just Peter's state of mind, but all believers who have sinned and thereby betrayed God. The text is, Ah, my soul, where will you go? Where shall I find relief? Should I stay here, or should I wish that hills and mountains were behind me? In the world there is no help, and in my heart are the pains of my wrongdoing, since the servant has denied the Lord. The aria is in 3-4 time, the key is F-sharp minor, and the mood is agitated from the beginning. Due to the frequent dotted 8th-16th rhythms, frequent strings of 16th notes in the violin's accompaniment, and the occasional dramatic large leaps of a 6th or 7th, mostly occurring in the instrumental accompaniment, but occasionally applied to the vocal line as well. Tying it all together harmonically is the chromatically descending bass line that recurs several times in both vocal and recurring ritonello sections. Here is the opening ritonello. Although the chromatically descending bass line only controls the first five bars, the last 11 measures of the opening ritonello are unified by repeating melodic figures, most notably the dotted 8th 16th figure featuring the leap of a diminished 7th and some related sequential activity. The vocal soloist enters with a melody that replicates the opening of the ritonello, although as he proceeds, some of the more dramatic leaps and florid 16th note passages are omitted. Here are the first few measures following the tenor soloist's entrance. 
that as the opening lines are repeated, ah, my soul, where will you go, where will you find relief, a new idea is introduced, one with a distinctive, if abrupt, cry of despair on the word ach. This figure, sung each time a step higher, becomes an important unifying motive and ensures that the intensity level remains high. The third bar of the tenor's initial entrance, a descending pattern of dotted eighths and sixteenths, also originally associated with the Ah, My Soul text, also comes to the fore as this section of the aria unfolds. The next section of the text, which begins with Should I stay here or should I wish that hills and mountains were behind me, initially suggests a slightly greater sense of pensiveness, if not exactly repose, but it too periodically bursts forth with large and boisterous ascending leaps. After a brief ritornello, the remainder of the text is introduced. In the world there is no help, and in my heart are the pains of my wrongdoing, since the servant has denied the Lord. This final section brings back an ornamented version of the opening vocal melody, not yet an F-sharp minor, but accompanied with the same chromatically descending bass line. But the mood continues to be restless, and when we finally arrive back at F-sharp minor, the original vocal melody has been replaced by a more intensely emotional one, characterized by more agitated leaps and accompanied once again by frequent 16th note runs in the strings. And yet, the movement does not end with a climactic gesture. The last two bars, played by orchestra alone, almost seem to hint at resignation, ending with a Picardy third on an F-sharp major chord. The next movement, a chorale, is the last in the first section of the Passion, that part sung before the Good Friday sermon. It employs a traditional chorale melody, Jesus' Suffering, Pain, and Death, composed by Melchior Vulpius, published in 1609. This chorale melody becomes a key component of Bach's St. John Passion, appearing twice more in the second half. The text has been adapted to serve as another commentary on Peter's anguish, but there is a suggestion of resignation and ultimately the promise of hope as well. The text reads, Peter, who does not think back at all, denies his God, but then, at a look of reproach, weeps bitterly. Jesus, look at me also when I am reluctant to repent. When I have done evil, stir up my conscience. Musically, the tone suggests resignation as well. Bach harmonizes the melody initially in F-sharp minor, but moves quickly to A major and then alternates between the two keys. 
There are some mildly unexpected and poignant touches of chromaticism here and there, primarily in the closing measures, which is often the case with Bach, but it is by no means a bitter or gloomy setting. While we're not yet at the halfway point, and the last part of the Passion is somewhat longer than the first, it's difficult to imagine interrupting the narrative flow from this point on. And so, we'll bring this episode to a close and conclude the St. John Passion in our next episode. <laughs>